0: Hey, welcome to the September edition of the Watermark Equipping webinar. My name is uh, Nathan Wagnon. I'm the director of equipping and apologetics here at Watermark, and one of the hosts of, of this webinar. And to my left, seated next to me, is
1: Nigga Spaulding. and I have the pleasure of being the director of women's equipping and curriculum here at Watermark Community Church. And then I'm staring into the lovely eyes of. But before we move on, though, <laughs> we move on, I, I, I mean, I've got
0: a I've got a note that uh, people can't see us, which is probably a good a good thing on for multiple reasons but you're wearing yourself you're, you're you're wearing an oklahoma hat or, or Oh, Nate. What, what's going on with oklahoma right well, now
1: Well, you know god god just brings love the mighty from time to time so <laughs> we will rise again yeah, uh, so I'm counting on it. Hopefully okay. sooner
2: than later. Hopefully yeah. sooner than later. I'm <laughs> okay. a real fan over there with Doctor Bob, so and
1: then it's time to move on from this before we end up in conference. Okay, that's so. right. I just
0: wanted to say that my hogs are three zero right now. So yeah, anyway, soon. yeah, right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um. So <laughs> the, the person who's fielding your questions and interacting with you today is the queen of puns, mm. uh, Sylvia Bateman.
1: Man, hey everyone. Yeah, Sylvia Bateman here. I also get to hang out at MoneyWise, and so if anybody's joining us from MoneyWise last night, we're glad you made it today as well. Awesome. Glad you're here.
0: And then today we are—we really are blessed uh, to be joined by Dr. Daryl Bach. He is the executive director of cultural engagement and the senior research professor of New Testament studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, so. At DTS, they obviously have different departments, and he's uh, one of the main guys in the New Testament department. But then they also have a center for culture, leadership and cultural engagement that uh, – is, is it still called the Hendricks Center? It's the Hendricks center, yeah. center, yeah. The Hendricks Center, named after uh, the guy that we all affectionately called Prof. Um, but – But Dr. Bach is uh, uh, from Houston, Texas, and is kind of all things Houston when it comes to that. (laughs) So thanks for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Glad to be here. My pleasure. He's also the author of a a recent book that's like literally just come out in the Mm -hmm. last month or so, right? Well, it's been out since May. Oh, okay. Well, the last few months. Yeah. Called How Would Jesus Vote? Uh, Do Your Political Positions Really Align with the Bible? So. Uh, not that he's trying to be controversial or anything like that, but he's got that good, strong title to the book. And that is what we want to talk about today. I mean, we live in a society and in a culture that is a lot of times feels like it's spinning out of control, um, especially as Christians who for a lot of us probably grew up in a you know Christian context or at least going to church where things are happening and things are shifting so quickly that a lot of times we're we feel like we're on this uh kind of out of control, crazy state fair ride or something like that. Um, and, and, and a lot of times are left either shaking our head or shrugging our shoulders and being like, what is going on right now? And so in a culture like that, how should we think about engaging that type of culture? What is cultural engagement? What are some of the ways that we need to think about that in order to do that in a way that's Christian?
2: Well, cultural engagement is basically <laughs> exactly what it says. It's engaged in culture, only the culture isn't singular. It's actually multiple. It's layered. Um, it, it is uh, both localized in terms of its context as well as uh, global and national. All those things interact with each other. Uh, and so when we're thinking Christianly about cultural engagement, we're asking how do I, as a believer who has a, it's our own set of allegiances tied to being a member of God's kingdom relate to uh, what's going on around me in the world. And how do I do that? Well, how do I appreciate what's going on around me, um, understand interact with what's going on around me, both positively and negatively and uh, do so sensitively with an awareness that my neighbor um, is also impacted by all this and may or may not carry the same um Particularly spiritual values and orientations that I may bring to that discussion. So, how do I have discussions with someone about God who doesn't even believe that God exists, or doesn't think uh, the Bible is particularly special book? Mm-hmm. Uh, all those kinds of things. So, all this is wrapped up in what we're talking about in cultural engagement.
0: Yeah, yeah. Obviously, those are there are a lot of different complexities to that. That's right. Um, when when coming to the table, and and I, I feel like a lot of times for especially for people who have have gone to church for a while. We, um, like you said, cultural is plural. And mm-hmm. so sometimes we're referred to as like subcultures or mm-hmm. various groups. And, and I would say like evangelical Christians are a funny bunch of people, you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> like we can get very um, uh, just compartmentalized in our own little world and, and fail to see a lot of the complexities of, of things that are going on around us. I know for me personally, When I served in the military, one of the things that um, happened when I deployed overseas was, you know, a a lot of my perceptions and bubbles about how simple things were like burst pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, and so when thinking through like those complexities, um, what have you seen in your experience as you've dealt with Christians? What are some of those things you've seen that have been um, open doors for people to start to think about? And appreciate the complexities that are going on in the world around us? Well,
2: there there are really lots of different things. The main thing is uh, being able to move outside of your own space and world, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, thinking through what it really means to listen to someone who's interacting with you, where they're coming from, in some cases, what motivates them. Uh, I like to tell people, of. First responsibility in cultural engagement is to get a spiritual GPS on someone, to just get a sense of where they're located, where they're coming from, which means that you do a lot of listening and you put your truth meter on low. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, uh, and if you do that, then you're in a position to uh, really hear the person, what, where they're coming from, what motivates them, Uh, What experiences they've been through that may color the way they look at things, that kind of thing. And the more information like that you have, the better off you are to actually engage them at a local level and in a personal level. And And so... Another thing about cultural engagement is, is that we think, talk about culture as if it's this thing that we all know, what, what it is that's yeah, out totally, there. Totally. <laughs> and, um, and everyone's perception of what that thing is that's out there, that glob that is culture, mm-hmm. um, it, it is somewhat different. And so that's another reason for the conversation is to get located. So we talk in abstractions about culture, but actually each of us has a perception about the thing that we're interacting with. And we've got to help in our conversations to figure out if we're actually talking about and engaging on the same thing or not.
1: Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Dr. Bach, I, when I first moved to Dallas, I had the opportunity to see you at one of these types of events where you were attempting to engage in the culture and you mm-hmm. were in a, a local church and you were asked to just talk about what are things we should consider in elections. Mm-hmm. And it was supposed to be a two part series where you spoke on the first half Q and a, and then you came and wrapped up on the second. Yeah. Half, that was at
2: the village. I know where that one yeah. was. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it
1: was. We weren't going to say that. We were going to say it, but you, <laughs> And, yeah. and
2: you, and the right. you know, someone said it takes a village, and in that particular yeah. case, it did. <laughs> <laughs> and,
1: and you said uh, God cares about the poor. That's uh-huh. simply all you said. But in that yeah. moment, the timing of that conversation was right after Obama had won his first election, I believe, and yeah. their tensions were high
2: in yeah. the room. Yeah.
1: And what people heard was completely different than I think what you said. Yeah, and
2: if I had said Jesus cared about the poor, I might have done slightly better. You're but sure, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. and so which just brings us to just our a next point. point. Yeah, that. maybe, That's
1: right. Maybe not, but uh, so which brings us to the next point. And why are these conversations that we're maybe attempting to have and hopefully having, and then why are they just so hard? I mean, that should have been a, a conflict because we're where it so emotionally welcoming.
2: invested in them. We've allowed ourselves to be so overly invested in the particular point of view that we have that we're more important in in keeping our uh, investment in place mm-hmm. than we are in actually engaging with the person that's sitting across from us. And when we do that, uh, we get in a defensive mode, a responsive mode, a reactive mode. Um, and uh, you know, in some cases it's because our sense of the truth meter is set on pretty high. Mm-hmm. And 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 then when you set it on pretty high, there it's like the old pinball games. I'm probably talking to a generation of man not <laughs> know what ball, you know, pinball is. You know what pinball is in the virtual world. Virtual world, but out. in the old yeah. pinball games yeah. <laughs> Okay, sometimes an old illustration can work. In the old pinball games, you know, they used to have a, a tilt thing that would go off if you push the the game too hard and, and it would shut everything down for a while. So, it, so, you know, so our, when your tilt button is always going off and you're always shutting down from the conversation, you're probably not having a good conversation. Yeah, that's great. I think
0: one of the, one of the more common that, uh, illustrations that I think people can really relate to, mm-hmm. especially the married folks is just your marriage relationship with your spouse. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many times do we get into conflict with our spouse? Oh, never. Depending you on, have yeah, my yeah, exactly. Right. I have a wonderful wife. She,
2: she just thinks, you know, she thinks I've, yeah, you know, right there next to the creator, yeah. sitting at the right hand. She listens to everything that I do. She doesn't blink. Yeah. You know, it's
0: wonderful. Yeah, we all should. Yeah. So, Doctor like Bach, one of the one of the first <laughs> steps is stepping out of denial. That's exactly, <laughs> right. <Yeah. So. laughs> exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but but no, I mean when I like when I'm in conflict with my wife, depending on my stubbornness at the time, my truth meter, if you want to you know call it that, it you know there can be massive pushback, but it takes. Two people coming to the table and saying, OK, I'm, I'm going to humble myself, mm-hmm. you know, um, allow my uh, my listen meter um, mm-hmm. to be raised so that I'm actually at the table able to respect you as a human being mm-hmm. and listen to your
2: and being. actually have a conversation totally. and not just a debate. Right. right. And so um, so when you engage at that level, you're trying to listen for uh, what. Uh, what the other person is saying. I, I'm just here off an interview with KERA. I just mm-hmm. did an interview with KERA on Israel, mm-hmm. about which no one agrees, and, uh, <laughs> and you know, yet another topic of, <laughs> uh, right. of uh, you know unanimity. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and we were talking about political discourse uh, mm-hmm. as a journalist, and mm-hmm. and I made the observation that we don't we actually don't have a conversation. Okay, what you have is a debate. Mm-hmm. Everything in journalism is set up to be counterpoint, And I actually think that the way journalism is set up and even the way the stations are structured and the, the filters they put on themselves actually takes us away from the conversations that we need to have with one another about politics, which is to recognize we live in a fallen world. There are tensions in the world that we have to deal with. Those tensions sometimes represent biblical values that are in tension with themselves Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because they don't always go together well because we've managed to so mix up the puzzle that we've got values running into each other. Mm -hmm. And in the midst of that, recognizing what the tensions are, being honest about it and asking how do you balance these tensions as opposed to doing what I think we often do, which is to pick one of the biblical values, park there and pretend the other Mm -hmm. biblical value doesn't exist. Um, And, when you go into a conversation with the recognition of, okay, my goal here is to have a conversation. My goal here isn't just to win my way or win my debate or decide whether I'm gonna friend or unfriend you on the basis of what you say. <laughs> um, you know, then, then I have a then I have the opportunity to have a different kind of dialogue, yeah. and that's really I, I think it's really important that we do that m-
0: more than. Generally, we have. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things that I've, uh, so I've, I've been reading your book mm-hmm. and one of the things you said in, in the first chapter about the way our government was shaped and formed was how someone could. the Our, our founders could vastly different worldviews from one another mm-hmm. could sit down at the table and and come mm-hmm. to common ground and uh, set up a, a constitution that was set up for that
2: they were trying to figure out how they could live together despite the fact that they didn't think all the same way and they had come out of societies where there had been state churches and that kind of thing where they were where where you were in terms of conscience was dictated to you to a certain degree and they wanted to create a society I mean our 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 roots are mixed we've got enlightenment input into what we have as well as you today a Christian value Um, there was a Michael Novak wrote a book on two wings, and that was the point that he made. Our country was really uh, made to serve two concerns at the same time a religious moral element that was heavily Judeo Christian on the one hand, that was one wing, and the other was this Enlightenment reason mm-hmm. wing that also dealt with conscience and freedom and that kind of thing. And what we've done in our time to a certain degree is try and we've tried to fly but we've done it trying to cut off one wing. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, you actually undercut the stability of your society. Numerous church fathers would would say things like um, uh, the only way to have a, a stable society is to have a, a really a realistic view of who we are as people and how much damage we can do to one another mm-hmm. if we're not careful. Mm-hmm. And, and in the midst of a society that has moved so dur- hard in the direction of human freedom and human autonomy without any sense of account- accountability or responsibility, you've lost that wing. Well, I would suggest that people ought to go out and try and fly a plane with one wing and see what <laughs> happens. Uh, it doesn't work. Yeah, and yeah. so so we're, we're experiencing that now. It's mm-hmm. It's been translated into us uh, in terms of gridlock and culture war. And the question is, you know, what the fathers tried to wrestle with is, despite our differences, how can we live together? Right, right. And when you talk about a category like common ground, the question I like to ask is—and I'm kind of having fun, but it's also serious—is how can you talk about common ground when you hold so little in common and you can't agree on what the ground is? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that—that's really where we find ourselves, and so we're kind of swimming. Yeah. Uh, and and it's—it's it's not an easy place to be but hopefully Christians can be in a place of of developing some care and empathy in a way in which they they listen and, and in saying all this we're not saying that you do away with your convictions and what you believe right. but it's the tone and the way in which you gauge it's the ability to explain this is why I believe what I believe without um, decimating the person on the other side who thinks differently than you are and, and getting them your goal actually is to try and help Bring them to an element of pause in the way they think about their own lives and consider what it is you may be raising. But yeah. to do that, you've got to be willing to do the other as well and, and listen to what the person is saying. Yeah, we've, we've talked about in the
0: past that this this principle that Greg Kokel uh, talks about, the stone in the shoe, uh-huh. you know, where somebody walks away from that conversation, not their views have necessarily changed, but there's a little bit of irritation in their shoe that's like, I need to think about that some yeah, more, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. You
1: know, yeah. one of the ways I think is helpful for people to do that is we, we sometimes find ourselves in conversations about culture and we use language like we're on a crusade, we're on a war, we need to win. Yeah. And in fact, I've heard you really reframe this of going instead of considering ourselves soldiers who are mm-hmm. out there fighting enemies of flesh and bone. What if we viewed ourselves more as ambassadors? And so why don't you speak to that just to help us? Yeah, pray. I
2: actually have two ways to deal with this because some people really like the military. And so, uh, and, so, 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 so and, and there is a conflict, you know, you, you've got to be able to recognize there is a conflict for for hearts and souls that are out there. And, you know, Ephesians six twelve says our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is against spiritual forces. It's a spiritual battle. It's a battle for souls. It's a battle for hearts. It's operating in a deep spiritual level. Mm-hmm. We need to appreciate that. What does that do to the military metaphor? Well, what it does to the military metaphor is rather than seeing the person who disagrees with me as the enemy, you know, or automatically painting them with two horns on their head because they don't see the wisdom that I possess instinctively, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, that. Uh, that, no, what you see is a spiritual war in which there are texts that talk about rescuing people mm-hmm. from the clutches of someone who's going to do them harm. 2 Timothy 2, 22 to 26 talks about a person being pricked in their conscience and realizing where they are and sna- escaping the snare of the devil. Mm-hmm. So the picture is someone who's entrapped, who's entrapped, may or may not even be aware of it, in trying to release them from their entrapment. So the military metaphor I like is we're not soldiers fighting a war against an enemy on the other side. Actually, we're more like special forces engaged in a rescue operation, in which we're going in and trying to rescue the person taken hostage by those spiritual forces and release them from it. So when I see the person that I'm talking with not as the enemy to crush, but as the person to rescue, yeah. okay, that makes a difference. Now, that's one metaphor. The other metaphor that also is a very important biblical metaphor is the ambassador metaphor. The ambassador metaphor means I represent someone by how I, not only by what I say, but even how I conduct myself in the midst of saying it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that also is an important picture. And I, and I actually think that's the more dominant engagement metaphor is that we are, we are representatives of God. We are saints who are a part of a kingdom. That kingdom is distinct from and separate from any nationality or citizenship that I have, and it actually trumps it. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, I've got to be especially critical of two things. I've got to be critical of my the way in which my allegiances to my nation may cloud my spiritual allegiances. And I also have to be pretty self-critical about the way in which my uh, Christian community can get captured mm-hmm. by that yeah. um, and, and wrestle through those kinds of questions. So that's, uh, I do think it makes a difference how you frame the conversation. And we're through probably three to four decades of long discussion in which Christians in the evangelical world have used the culture war as the major metaphor that we have, you know, we've mm-hmm. got to be soldiers. And yep. if you're in men's ministry, my goodness, you, you're, you're strapped for battle with every weapon that you can put on your back, <laughs> yeah. you know? So, you know, yeah. is, do I use a six shooter or a yeah. Bazooka? Yeah. Or maybe, <laughs> but bazooka? Maybe a partial, sure, yeah. nuclear yeah. weapon every yeah, now and yeah, then, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. and, and destruction and demo, and, and decimation is the goal. No. Um, it's a strange war. It's a mm-hmm. war in which the person is on the other side of the line. Mm-hmm. It's not a person I'm called to crush. Yep. Okay, It's a person I'm called to try and persuade to come join me. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dr. Barr, we've heard you talk about this too. I think if we're ambassadors to Christ, then we should speak to people in the way that Christ would. And sometimes people go, well, what about the times when he's calling on broods of vipers and hypocrites? And there's a very clear distinction in the yeah. two kinds of, people that Jesus talks to when he's talking to the religious leaders who are leading people astray. People who should know better. Who should know better. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Typically the whipping, the washing. That's right. And then when you see him engaging with those who are truly lost, the woman at the well, you see a tenderness and you see a gentleness. And I think that distinction is helpful for people to understand how that as an ambassador, if Jesus were to walk upon the lost person how he would engage with them and the amazing
2: thing it. is is it a marginalized people sense this from Jesus they were drawn to him mm-hmm. okay they sense that even though he was challenging them there's another tension here the tension of the gospel is a challenge to the way people live. Exactly. God doesn't walk up to people and say, pat you on the back and say, oh, you're my child. I don't care what you do. Yeah. You know, I'm going to give you a hug. Here's a teddy bear. You know, right. uh, what, he, what he does is he challenges us with the way that he lives in terms of being in line with the way he designed us when he made us in his image. And that is hard. Mm. But. He does it with a graciousness and a tenderness and an invitation. Right. Yeah, a husband uh, you don't have. Exactly right. But
1: you may drink of this water if a, you like. Exactly
2: yeah. right. And with that invitation then, um, he he it isn't that he trumps the challenge, but he frames it. Mm. Okay. He frames it in a frame that says, the reason I challenge you is because I really care. Yeah. Uh, and people can sense when that's and genuine. they can sense thats when that's genuine. they won't care about your critique unless they know you care yeah. and so how the church engages with people they disagree with is actually a very important part of the of the puzzle and my my fear has been that we've been so committed to being right that we've engaged in the wrong way yeah, yeah, yeah. and actually
0: lost ground yeah. yeah so that that brings up an interesting point because I do think that you look you know, you, you look five feet anywhere and people um, end up using Jesus mm-hmm. um, because, like you said, we've we've been so concerned with being right that Jesus ends up being a means to an end to for everybody to embrace the rightness that I embrace mm-hmm. kind of thing. And and there's so many things wrong with that that I don't even know where to start. But but I, I do think the major point that that I thought about while you were talking is that if. The Jesus that we're using, which most of the time when you're using Jesus, you morph him into whatever image you want him to be so that you're comfortable with it. Yeah, he's either time. an elephant or a donkey. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> <laughs> go for it <laughs> Whatever. but I think that and I think the principle is this is I, and I've experienced this for sure in my own life like if, if Jesus is not consistently pressing in on you and making you uncomfortable in some way shape or form then then you're probably worshiping the wrong Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that 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 kind of introspection as we evaluate like when because we do we see these causes that we want to champion and go take that hill. And, you know, it would be so great if everybody embraced, you know, this morality and, and this ethic and these types of things that um, even in doing something that uh, might be um, admirable to say, yes, we should live in a ethical society, in a moral society. We can inadvertently use Jesus as a tool to push people there as opposed to inviting them to the table as an ambassador. um, And we look for the solution
2: in the wrong place. place. We think that a good law can fix things. Uh, And uh, a good law doesn't necessarily think. The Old Testament is a story Mm. of a people who had God in their ear, (laughs) writing their laws, telling them how to live. Okay. And it they is one it. chaotic dream. <laughs> <sin. laughs> I mean it is wow. it was because you had good laws, but you had hearts that were still out of alignment with God. Yeah. So the I mean that's why mission's important, that's why the gospel's important. The real change comes internally when a person's heart changes, not because I write an external law that makes people hey, I mean, the greatest illustration of how this doesn't work is something like prohibition. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at the mm-hmm. experiment, uh, experiment that Prohibition was <laughs> yeah. and look at the utter failure yeah. that Prohibition yeah. was because people's hearts weren't really there aligned with the law. Right. And the flip side of that is, is that if I have good theology, I understand that people who, don't have, who, who haven't experienced the grace of God and who haven't uh, wrestled with the grace of God uh, and who, who, who don't have the internal equipment to recognize their need for God uh, don't aren't very inclined to live in the way God desires and for a variety of reasons um, something that that believers actually should understand because they should appreciate what it is that God has given mm-hmm, them mm-hmm. that they could never have given themselves yeah, right, without it right, right. and so so you've got that element in the equation so the so the way this works is if you want to know what good laws look like with Bad hearts. Read your Old Testament. That's why we got a new covenant. Mm -hmm. The point of the new covenant was to say, God, by his grace, is going to supply something for you. You cannot supply for yourself. And that's where real change happens. Mm -hmm. So if we look for change in the wrong place, we get over invested in it. And we also fail because Mm -hmm. it can't bring the change we're actually hoping for and looking for. So that's why how we conduct ourselves as Christians as a part of a larger mission that transcends the political scene that we we're engaged with and oftentimes so um, so significantly invested in is so important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so anything that we do that that clouds that, that sends the signal, no, the political arena is really the most important right. and the mission is a secondary thing. Mm-hmm. Anything that flips that actually down. is dangerous. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Well, you know, obviously if you haven't picked up on it yet, as you're listening, you realize this is a very complex thing, uh, mm-hmm. and cultural engagement is. It's never simple, um, and it takes nothing short of the Holy Spirit directing it. But part of the complexity is we deal with different kinds of problems. You know, you can't always say all problems are simple and all mm-hmm. problems fall in these easy buckets. And so mm-hmm. we've heard you talk about there being really three kinds of conversations. And so why don't you dive into those and just briefly outline those yeah. of tension, those of, that are, we think we know what we need to do, but we're not sure how to get there. And then, hey, we just don't agree.
2: Yeah, there, there. Uh, I, I would submit that most of our political discussions are actually discussions of of a singular type, and that is that there are there are biblical and human values that are coming into into tension with each other, and and the job, even in the political sphere, is to sort out how those tensions relate to one another. Unfortunately, that's not how we approach them in our conversation. But mm-hmm. we do in our conversation is rather than recognize the tension and ask how do we balance these and how do we put these alongside one another, we come along and we pick. Between the tensions, I'm either going to be for this or for that. We sloganize it. We soundbite it. We make it our title. We use it as a weapon, mm-hmm. the side that mm-hmm. we pick. Mm-hmm. And in the midst of that, we don't listen to the other part of the conversation that we need to be having. And in that process, we never get to the conversation we need to have, right. which is how do I balance these tensions that come uh, between each other and do so in a in a hopefully in a societally responsible kind of way. Yeah. Um, and uh, in the book, I think I go through like 12 or 13 issues, like 10 of them belong in that category. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet we're as passionately engaged in whether government's big or small mm-hmm. or globalization or, you know, make America great or or how we handle gun control or immigration, Immigration, you build a border or you show compassion to the person. You know who's who's the stranger in the strange land. I mean, no matter which one, you've got these things in tension, and we need to sort out how to, how to balance those and what what we can afford to do, what we can, what's realistic to do, mm-hmm. all those kinds of things. And we never have that discussion yeah. because we we put one side on one side of the divide and the other side on the other side of the divide, and we each cling to that without recognizing what the other person is bringing to the table, and we dig in. Yeah. You know, entrench. Entrench, and, and then because we're in a war mode, in and we're in a war mode. Yeah. Okay. We've talked about the 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 uh, artillery belt yeah. already. Yeah, okay. Right. It's either a pop gun, a grenade, <laughs> all the way up to a nuclear bomb yeah. that we uh, uh, deploy in order to get our way. Hmm. And so, um, so that that's one class. The second class is actually something we're uh, in the midst of observing right now. And that is racial reconciliation. It is one in which everyone at least states that they understand what the goal is. Mm-hmm. And there isn't, there isn't disagreeing. No one walks around saying the races should fight one another. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's what we're each going to dig in on our side. Now, everyone recognizes that there's probably some value to having the races reconcile yeah. to one another. They embrace that as a value. They just have no clue how to get there. Yeah, right. They are in such a different place in terms of where their experience is and what they've gone through and what they're sensitive to and sensitive about that they just again so all of a sudden this has become a discussion between police and race mm-hmm. with a little gun control mixed in yeah. and maybe drugs and who knows what else mm-hmm. and the and, and and the thing is all those are factors every one of them so you don't get to pick and choose you've got to ask yourself all right how do we how do we unravel this tangled thing you know, uh, race relations is a little bit like your, you know, like your cords. You put in your computer bag, yeah. you put them in nicely. <laughs> and by the I time know, you I mean, open your computer to bag to go pull it out, they've man, it <laughs> up managed to get tangled, out, yeah. all tangled up. <laughs> and I have no idea how it happened. you know. So, so, um, so that's a picture you get. So you've got to work to untangle that and, and, And unfortunately, this untangling is an emotional untangling. And so it comes with a lot of pain and a lot of, again, listen, that's the second class. I'm taking a long time to answer your question. The third class is the ones that we really do disagree on. There really is no middle ground. The only thing that we have to sort is, all right, how do I live as a neighbor with someone who thinks that differently than I do? Mm -hmm. You still have the pastoral problem. You still have the relational issues of how you sort all that out. But the fact is there, you know, uh, someone who believes that abortion is a is a non-moral choice of freedom about what I do with my body right. versus someone who thinks, no, there's morally at stake, something at stake in, in that choice because that entity or thing that you're carrying actually is a person, a human being. Uh, you know, and, and what that means. I mean, those are two completely different clashing. The whole sexuality discussion in terms of same-sex marriage is Uh, is you know people some say marriage is between a man and a woman it's God ordained that's the end of it and people on the other side there isn't even a God to ordain what that relationship is much less we should dictate something about it so how do you sort that out so there are three different issues but here's the major point major point is is that most of those issues belong in that first category Mm -hmm. they don't belong in that second category or that third category but we tend to treat them all as if they're in the third category okay So we ought to have some awareness of the kind of issue that we're discussing, what's at stake as we go into it. And we also need to have, even in the places where there really is a worldview clash, some sense of our pastoral responsibilities of our relational responsibilities as we engage in these conversations.
1: Yeah, yeah so let's, let's dive in then into yeah. particulars, because I think this is helpful. So Dealer's Choice, it's your book, so you can pick any <laughs> tension point issue you want. Yeah. But walk us through just, you know, on any one of these issues, like you mentioned, gun control, immigration, poverty, how, how would a level-headed uh, Christian come at this and wrestle through these tension points?
2: Well, I, I, the two that I like to pick out when I'm just given the, you know, when the, bowl of M&Ms is set before me and I said, you pick the red one or the blue one. Um, I, I, the one that I, the ones that I like to talk about are immigration and gun control for two very different reasons. Gun control is fun. Okay. It, not really, but, <laughs> but what makes gun control interesting is, as I like to say to my students, um, We'll go out to eat when you find me the passage that addresses guns directly. Okay. And then how would you like to go on a fast? <laughs> uh, so, you know, if you think about it, the Bible's written long before guns ever show up. And so there, there is no direct address of guns anywhere in the Bible. So how do you, how do you talk about gun control? Not only that, the government, the whole way that decision gets made comes out of a different political system than even existed in the first century. People didn't participate in a democracy where they had a choice. They didn't have constitutions that they built their societies and their lives around. So you've got that. So there, there's this huge. Difference. So how do you go to the Bible to think through that? Well, what you do is you ask, what does the Bible have to say about violence? What does the Bible have to say about self-protection? All those kinds of things. And the tension is the Bible does allow for some uh, realm of self-protection. It even had laws in the Old Testament that distinguished. If you killed someone who invaded your tent... Okay, didn't have homes then, had tents. Okay, someone who invaded your tent at night or your abode um, and you killed them at at, at night and they were a thief, uh, you weren't culpable. But if you killed them during the day, you could be culpable Mm. if you killed them, Mm. depending on the circumstances. Mm -hmm. So... um, and he said, that's interesting. You yeah, shouldn't be in yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. there at That's just interesting. So you've got yeah. passages that yeah. talk about your right of self-protection. You've got nations that d- defend their interests. I mean, Scripture says the nation has the right of a sword to protect its people. Right. That's one of the major reasons why government functions. So you've got those principles. But then you've got all the pacifism and the turning the other cheek and all those kinds of things. So those are texts that are in tension with each mm-hmm. other. And the conversation to have is how do you balance those? How do you balance the right of, of being able to protect your space on the one hand with the tendencies to be as nonviolent as possible on the other? And so that and then you raise a question like so when you come to gun control and you ask, how do background checks Get in the way of the right now. Now we've we've already made a decision. This is this is what gets me when I travel overseas because people don't get this decision. <laughs> we've already made a decision. We're going to have guns. It's it's written into our constitution. Mm-hmm. People have the right to bear arms. Mm-hmm. So unless you get a constitutional amendment, which ain't happening, <laughs> okay, unless you get a constitutional amendment in that regard, we've already said our society is going to function with these weapons in our world.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: How do you do that responsibly? Yep. And and to me. As a Christian, I step back and I go, it seems to me it's a perfectly reasonable conversation to ask certain things like, should our background checks be be responsibly done mm-hmm. and, and up to date? Should people who are not mentally in a state to handle a gun mm-hmm. be allowed to do so? Mm-hmm. Okay. And the reason I ask that question, we treat our cars as yeah, weapons. Absolutely. Okay. I get a license in order to drive a car. Yep. Because the view is, if I drive that car irresponsibly, other people will get hurt. Mm-hmm. If that's true of a car, yeah. it might be true of a gun. Maybe, okay, maybe, just maybe, maybe. Just think about it. <laughs> Just think about that. So, so it, it, it's having that kind of a discussion that I'm talking mm-hmm. about. When we step back and we say, let's step away from the way special interests tend to frame this discussion. Yep. Or bring that. let them bring that to the table, too, but ask these other questions alongside of it. And have a conversation about really what's the best way for us to live together.
0: But that brings up an interesting point because you, I mean, anytime gun control is mentioned on Capitol Hill or even close to it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the other factor that a you lot of times. You have to go through security in order to get to Capitol Hill. <laughs> yeah, yeah go that's ahead. Right. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, the the other factor that a lot of times, it, well, it's constantly there, but a lot of times we don't recognize it, is that there are, um, there, there are lobbyists. There are special interest groups who are saying, and and that what they're doing is framing the conversation exactly. in a certain way that already They're gonna take
2: p- away your freedom if they tell already, you about your gun. Yeah, it whatever. already yeah. puts
0: us at a deficit right in, in attempting to have this conversation because if any kind of um proposal And they're pouring around, money and resources, you totally, know. Totally.
2: Totally. And and that and here's the hard part. Here's the really hard part for a Christian to think through. Most politics is built around self interest. Mm-hmm they're called special interest groups for a reason. Yeah. Okay. And so, so most politics is built around self-interest and yet the best way to function in a society is to ask the question that extend, ask me to extend myself beyond myself. Right, right. Right. So, you've got to overcome that. Yep. You you uh, in order to think about what's the best way for us to function together.
0: But I guarantee you, somebody listening right now is thinking, "Hey, they're talking about they're talking about gun control legislation. They're talking about like I promise you, somebody's mentality is, wait a second. Like are they advocating that they take away my guns?" And I and I think to to level out that like I own a weapon I, I have a license to carry, mm-hmm. you know, I have a, a long history with weapons, you know. Um, so you're a heat packer. So, <laughs>
2: but, but I also.
0: There are meat packers and heat and packers. Heat packers. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: But I also come to the table
0: and I'm like, I, I'm open to for, for there to be you know, control measures in place like we do licensing. I actually find and, you that you know, people, vehicles. you
2: know, I live in Texas. I don't own a gun. I don't carry a gun, but I have relatives who do and who deeply believe in it and yeah. and and, now I, and they do so responsibly. Yeah. And what I think is interesting is, is that people who really understand the responsibility that they have of being someone who mm-hmm. carries a weapon mm-hmm. like that. I find that mo- many of them, I won't say, I won't put a, a lot yeah, more than yeah, that, yeah, although yeah. I'm tempted to say most. Yeah. Um, uh, that many of them actually do appreciate having this kind of a conversation yeah. because yeah. they understand the responsibility that carrying a weapon actually yep. demands of a person yep. to do so responsibly. You know. And the odd thing is you travel overseas on this one and to countries where they don't allow weapons mm. to circulate like we do. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the level of societal violence is significantly Absolutely. reduced as a result. And they ask, how in the world can you do this? Yep. Uh, I was in Australia this summer doing an interview with the Center for Public Christianity. We were talking about American politics. And besides trying to understand why we are where we are, for which I had no explanation whatsoever, um, I, I, I turn, uh, the next question they wanted to know is, why are Americans so infatuated with guns? You know, that was that was their impression. And and I said, you've got to understand our history in order to understand why this was written into our Constitution. Mm. Um, And 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 then once you've made that decision, you've got a harder responsibility. It's all right. If you're going to allow all these weapons of minor destruction (laughs) in people's hands, then uh, how are you going to regulate it in a way that makes sense for the society? Yeah, Yeah.
1: Let's move on then to immigration. Okay, so being, good. You know, I'm glad you picked that one up because I almost thought
2: yeah. so this is a different one. This is the one in which the tension is a nation has an absolute right to define what its laws are, that its borders be respected, that its laws be followed. I mean, you cannot have a stable society without people doing that. Yeah. Okay. There also are a terrific amount of texts, in fact, a level of texts that most people aren't aware of, about um, – having sensitivity to being a foreigner. In fact, to Israel it said, you know, um, uh, uh, basically watch how you treat the foreigner because you know what it is to be a stranger in a mm-hmm. strange land. Mm-hmm. In fact, in some passages it says you even know what it is to be a slave in a strange mm-hmm. land. And so so you've got those passages. Those passages are in tension with one another. Now what some people try and do to deal with this issue is they try and say, well, there are only certain people who count as foreigners in the Old Testament, to which I go, I'm sorry, Okay. I don't think when Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, he is asking us to distinguish between who our neighbor is, that there is a core biblical value that says my neighbor is my neighbor and I'm responsible um, to to care and love for them. And and when the very lawyer asks the question, who's my neighbor, to really ask, aren't there some people who aren't my neighbor? Jesus told the parable to absolutely not go in that place. Right. Now, that doesn't mean that those people aren't responsible for how they carry out and respond to laws and that you need to think through law and order. But our immigration discussion has become a debate about about sequence. Mm-hmm. Do we fix the borders and then deal with the people internally that who right. are in the millions that we have and that we're having to deal with? Right. Uh, and do we wait until the borders are fixed until we deal with that internally? To we, And most people are arguing for some form of sequence. You fix the borders and then you work internally. To which I say, and I will admit that I have um, a very skeptical take on people who oftentimes do it this way. And that is, it becomes the fixing the borders becomes an excuse not to deal with what's right, going on yeah. internally because you're never going to totally fix your border, even if you build a wall and get someone else to pay for it. Okay, someone's going to figure out a way to scale that wall or dig a tunnel underneath it or whatever. People
1: are impressive. People people are
2: impressive yeah. in the way I mean. Ask Israel. They do it, you know, they've got walls all over the place yep. and they've got leaks all over the place. Yep. Yep. So, so, my, and so to me, on the immigration discussion, as you're dealing with these values, yes, you want to equip your borders, you want to make sure that you have integrity. But you've got this group of, of people here, somewhere between 11 and 12 million, many of whom were enticed to come here mm-hmm. originally. I don't think we own moral responsibility for why we're in the situation that we're in, at least to some degree. Yes, they overstayed their visas. The way our system works is, you know, you're allowed in and and you're allowed in in a way that allows you in. But our system doesn't deal well with what happens after that. So if someone just stays around, okay, we because we didn't check on them and don't check up on them generally speaking they stay around and 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 we have no way of help well we do have a way we have a way of sending them back so they can come back in but we have no way from within this context of having them deal with that so our our immigration structure is incomplete and that's producing some of our problems that's why you need immigration reform and talk seriously about it and so and we have some of the responsibility. Some people have enticed these other people to come in. They have uh, sheltered them. They have hired them. They have paid them. They have mm-hmm. helped them. They, in some cases, know that they're illegal but still continue to work with them. And they've now been here several generations. Right. Okay. Now now I've got kids and, in some cases, even grandkids. grandkids. They've been there that long. Yeah. So the a policy that comes along and says just break up the family, if the person's here illegally, send them home, mm-hmm. I'm going, I'm not sure, given the family values that we have, that that's the best overall solution, given the tensions that we're facing. Mm-hmm. So isn't, so the question of immigration is this question. Isn't there a better way mm-hmm. to do this? Mm-hmm. Isn't there a better way to think about what we do with the 11 million people here? Now, now, what's come into the mix in the last five years to make it more complicated is the terrorist threat. Okay, mm-hmm. very real, very genuine. Okay, so how do we do this in such a way that if I can say it this way, the people who aren't seeking to infiltrate, you know, our country don't get in. But the people who are fleeing Mm -hmm. that very same violence and want out and want another place to live that's different than where they came from. I mean, who wants to live in Aleppo? Yeah. Right. How do we build a structure that does that? Well, that takes immigration reform. But right right now we're gridlocked. Yeah. OK, we've got the border people on one side and the compassionate people on the other.
0: And what do we do? And, and well, they have both retreated from the table and have entrenched themselves. That's, and that's right. Three years ago, three and, and a half
2: years other. ago, yeah. we were probably very, very close yeah. to actually having having an agreement until the terrorist threat began to over over mm. overflow and spill over into this mm. problem. And then people backed off yeah. Yeah. And and. In all fairness, legitimately, I mean, there were legitimate yep. concerns totally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that sure. were a part of the conversation. Yeah. So, the, so my question is, as a Christian thinking about this from a humanitarian point of view, and 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 as well as politically, is, you know, what prevents us from having a really good conversation and decoupling? the things that we link together in terms of sequence why can't we work on doing a better job with regard to our borders and defining what we are while dealing with the people who are already here and figuring out a way to assimilate those who are here who really have done nothing destructive while being here they really have contributed to our society Mm -hmm. they're not paying our entire tax system etc as they ought to be and you know, there's a benefit from assimilating him from that angle, et cetera. There are all kinds of yeah, reasons yeah. why we can handle this a yeah. different way. Yeah.
1: If you're listening at home to, to some of these tension points, um, just as another resource to remind you of that, Todd has done some real truth real quicks on uh, carrying a handgun, on immigration. In fact, I believe one came out today on should a Christian engage in politics. And so if anything we're talking about today, you're going, gosh, I'd love to continue to learn more those resources out there let's for the sake of time let's jump you, you said something earlier i want you to be able to pick up on that on genuine worldview clash and people tend to take tension points and yet stick them into the genuine worldview clash but instead in the worldview clash there really is opposing viewpoints and this is how do we live together knowing we just flat out disagree
2: yeah, yeah. So, how do you agree to how do you agree to disagree together well and that person's your neighbor how do you um uh families are discovering this churches are discovering this now because for example in the whole same sex issue area you know there are children of parents in christian homes who come to their mom or dad and say hey i'm gay
1: mhm
2: now what are you going to do yeah. okay all right and 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 how how does the church help that parent in that situation those mm-hmm. kinds of mm-hmm. things things that move have nothing to do with what laws we have, but have everything to do with how i'm going to relate re- relate to the person and of course, there are people who would argue that you know that what you do you know is, is you disown the child you know you state your sense of accountability and and to me what you you almost do the exact opposite what you what you do is you try and care and love them in the midst of your disagreement. Mm-hmm. As well and as powerfully as you can if Jesus taught something that I thought was very interesting if people only love the people who love them then how is their discipleship any different than what goes on in the world that's right and 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 to me what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount is our love is supposed to be different and distinctive and it's in the difference and in the distinctiveness that you actually see And that there's something else going on here that's worth inquiring about. It's easy to love
1: those who are like us. That's right. But to love somebody who is truly different. That's right. And I think so many times – what happens in, in many Christians' hearts is they go, gosh, I want to love this person well, but I'm afraid if by loving them, I'm being complicit in their sin. Yeah. And I think there's right. a way to say, hey, I can love and care for you while you know I disagree. That's right. This part of your life, because right. you are more than your sexuality, you're more than mm. your, uh, you know, the abortion that you may think. Or you whatever arrest, political, or whatever party, political you vote, party, party you belong, you belong to. not just a Democrat or not just a Republican right. or not just a fill in the blank. And I can still I can see you as a as a person made in the image, of God, who I can love fiercely in the way that Christ would while having major disagreements. I mean, Nate and I don't agree on anything and I still have to love him. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, I yeah. But I
1: think there's a way to Welcome do to that. And I, and I, think I can
2: <laughs> understand you. <I> can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Like I'm i in me. On the air. I've been <laughs> like I'm like you you. Yeah. No, I, I I think the interesting thing here is, is that there is a way to do this. Mark Yarhouse, who's a psychologist, who's worked in the same-sex area for years as a Christian psychologist, probably knows more about it than almost any Christian psychologist, maybe even in the world, uh, has a phrase that he uses called convicted civility. And he's talking about how do you have conviction on the one hand, yet enough civility and communicate enough respect to the person on the other, that that you end up having when you do engage, you end up actually discussing the issue, mm-hmm. you know, right. as opposed to trying to tear down the other person. Right. And um, and that really is, I think, a, a phrase worth kind of hanging on to. That there is a there is a way of engagement. There's a way to agree to disagree that can keep your discussion on the on the merits of the issue. On the one hand, I mean, when a gay person says to says to me as, as a person. You know, if I choose a gay lifestyle, particularly if I'm a if I'm a, called a gay Christian, I've, I'm, I understand I'm same sex attracted, but I also understand the Bible's against this. So I've made a decision for celibacy in terms of sexuality. I'm sitting here going, man, the church ought to rally around that person as much as possible because they need all help because the, yeah. what they are ultimately fighting is an intimacy and a loneliness. Mm-hmm. OK, mm-hmm. that is at risk mm-hmm. because they've taken a courageous position. Right, right. Uh, So, so I want to help that person. And, uh, and I want, and and my hope would be that the church would do everything to take that person because they've taken a sacrificial courageous step from the way the world normally sees things. And the world is enticing them all the time to totally say, "You really don't right. need to go there. Sure. Yeah, you have the right. You don't need. You don't need to go there.
1: You you deserve love. You're entitled yeah, exactly to love. Exactly right. That so right.
2: so there are ways to do this. And even in the context where a person goes, there's a beautiful book by a guy named Christopher Yuan, who who is a gay Christian, who came out. And the book is about how he he wasn't a Christian at the time, came out to his mom, who was a strong Christian, and Um, and their journey together Mm -hmm. until he finally came to the Lord Mm -hmm. or came to be aware of kind of how his sexuality worked in light of his spiritual condition and how he made a choice for singleness in the midst of that and how he's living his life in light of that. Mm -hmm. And his mother is part of this story all alongside telling what she's going through as they have this conversation. But but her
0: presence is faithful in his life. Her presence is faithful
2: in his life, and she's there. In fact, now when he speaks, we're getting ready to have him come in the spring to the seminary, and he's going to bring his mom with him. Oh, They're cool. going to tell their story. Yeah, that's good. That's and so, you know, so you're sitting here going, "This can be done." Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. And 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 you get very very
0: exceptional yeah. things that happen as a result. Yeah. Really, in a lot of ways, we're uh, we're talking about where two kingdoms can sometimes compete with one another. That's right. That is um, yeah. the way we would we would sometimes uh, champion. A, po- a political issue from our point of view, an attempt to gain victory or win in that arena, and at and at the same time, in doing so, um, sacrifice or or uh, place under that priority um, our responsibility as citizens of the Kingdom of, of, of Jesus's Kingdom. I kingdom actually think heaven. this election is heading us in that direction because we're being
2: asked. Neither candidate is outstanding from yep. a Christian evaluation point of view people are asking questions like do I vote for the lesser of two evils that kind of thing What you have to think about is does my vote for this person communicate an endorsement in terms of the totality of what they offer that is a reflection of my church Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay in my now in one sense you're going to have that with every political candidate okay (laughs) so you got to be careful with this question but the problem here is, is that the deficits coming from both sides are so are immense. Yeah. I, t- I tell people the choice in this election is like deciding, how do I want my home to be damaged, by a hurricane or by a tornado? <laughs> okay, right. different yeah. kind of damage, yeah. different things. Are going to, but in either case, the damage yeah. is going to be significant. Yep. Yep. Does the church, as kind of a third way, it's supposed to be a conscience in the world, step back at a certain point and say, You both have hit my tilt button, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'll be darned, theological expression, (laughs) I'll be darned if I'm going to give you the sense of an imprimatur for what you represent as a whole by suggesting that what you're asking, that my choice of you represents a good moral Mm -hmm. choice. Mm -hmm. I think the church has to be very careful about going to that kind of a space. I don't have a problem with a person who says, I'm picking this person because of this one area and I'm going to go there. But I think you also need to realize when you do that, you're pretending to ignore a whole lot of other things that don't look so good. And that's true, right? That's true in this particular election in a significant way of both of our major choices, which has made this election for, I think, a sensitive, conscientious Christian, nothing short of a nightmare. Mm -hmm. Because – I've got a hurricane coming at me from the Gulf, and I've got a tornado coming at me and down Tornado Alley from the nor- from the north. Yeah. And uh, and the beautiful thing is, they might just collide over my yeah. house. <laughs> yeah, agree, yeah,
1: Yeah, but the more beautiful thing, and really what I was able to speak to, just some of the women in our women's ministry this week, is what brings us great comfort in this is knowing that America is not our first and highest kingdom. Mm-hmm. That ultimately there are competing kingdoms, and we belong to one where there are no more tornadoes and and hurricanes. Which is precisely why
2: you shouldn't be nervous, frustrated, terrified, or any of the, uh, the, uh, all the normal reactions that you normally see. That desire
1: to win, which I have, which I understand what people bring. Like the great thing is the victory is mine in the first. It's it's already there. I can relax.
2: I have nothing ultimately significantly at risk other than a fallen world that I already live in, you know? And so uh, it may be a question of how fallen it is, but, but at least I can step back and say, I know my security, my identity, my, my relationship and who I am uh, transcends everything that's
0: bothering everybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Which I think to just to end our time, because um, we are out of time, I know this time flies, yeah. <laughs> but to end our time, I think that um, a couple of passages, a couple of statements from Jesus are, are in my mind right now. And one of them is. Is where he's talking to his disciples. And and I think we're starting to appreciate, even on a deeper level, given the world we live in, uh, the, the depth of a statement like this, where he says, um, in, in this world, you are going to have trouble, mm-hmm. you know, but take heart, I have overcome the world, mm-hmm. you know. The kingship of Jesus is something that we that we submit to and rest in. There's a there's a rest. There's a my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And at the same time, I think talking to talking uh, about the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning of it, um, Jesus is saying um, to his to his followers, to his the people in his kingdom um you're you're the you're the salt of the earth. Mm-hmm. You're the you're the light of the world. You're a city that's going to be set up on a hill, mm-hmm. you know, and I think as we think as 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 followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, uh, that that that's something that's true about us. And, and that is and, and is also a responsibility of ours as we cooperate with Jesus through his spirit to be beacons of light in this craziness, mm-hmm. you know, to to get out of the trench and meet people in the middle and to be able to, to extend beyond yourself mm-hmm. in the power of Jesus. And so all of those principles, um, I think, apply here. And, and, uh, and definitely as we continue to engage our culture, hopefully, you know, th- this hour has been uh, time well spent for you. And if there's anything we can do to further equip you in this, we'd, we'd love to chat with you, but Dr. Bach, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. For giving us your time. Next month, we're going to have Dr. Paul Koppen, who wrote, Is God a Moral Monster? We're going to talk to him about difficult passages in the Old Testament like genocide, slavery, sexual abuse, uh, other stuff like that. So tune in. Help us get the word out on this. Tell a friend. We'd love for a, a good chunk of our body to tune into this. We appreciate you guys tuning in, and we hope to see you next time.